0: Welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia. And sticking it to Annoying Teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Uh, so uh, we are at episode
1: 182. Can you even believe it?
0: it yeah, we've, we were saying the other day, like we mentioned offhand what number of episode we were on, and we were like, How, how, how did, on did earth? we get there? Have we done this many episodes? <laughs> That's so many book reports.
1: That's so many things to talk about. I didn't honestly. I didn't think that I had that many things to talk about in me, frankly. <laughs> and I can only remember maybe half a dozen
0: of the last episodes right. that we've done. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny though. Like when we watch like a game show or something, and I'm like, oh, "You should know that, Josh, because we did a whole episode on it." And he's like, "Do I, you even remember doing that episode?" It's <laughs> like, "No." And there was there was one question the other night when we were watching. Um, uh, the first the premiere episode of the chase this season mm-hmm. and the question was the statue of liberty wasn't oh. intended for it wasn't originally intended for new york harbor where was it originally built for and they gave you uh trafalgar square suez canal and gibraltar like what was going to be the original location mm-hmm. of the statue of liberty and i was like is this something I talked about in the Suez Canal episode? <laughs> I think it might be. I feel like there's a little thing in my brain that I did a whole episode of the Suez Canal, and I thought this would be an interesting tidbit, and I was mm-hmm. like, I hope I'm right. <laughs> Were you right? I was. was. Oh, okay, good. It good, was, good, guys. Good. So, yes, if you uh, missed that episode or that episode of The Chase, uh, the Suez Canal was uh, the original intended site for what America has as the Statue of Liberty.
1: And that's a freebie, folks. We're not even talking about the Suez yeah, Canal. Yeah, so or... it's like stuff
0: that... Stuff that we've talked about that I'm like, I'm pretty sh- I we talked sure. about that, right? That's something I would have talked about.
1: <laughs> I would have done that eventually, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so uh, 182, incredible. Um, and today is a music episode. Oh, oh, yeah. Is it going to be about Blink 182? <laughs> yes, because we are huge Blink 182 fans, <laughs> like that song. All the, All the small things. That small was our-
0: things. <laughs> That's the only one I can think We're of. We're going to do a quick sidebar. So on the last episode of the Great British, the, sorry, the last season of the Great British Bake Off, uh-huh. um, in the first episode when they had to make like the bust, yes. bust of a person cakes, mm-hmm. and Dave whipped out the, a bust of his hero, Tom Delong. Yeah. <laughs> what a weird that was guy. the craziest. That was, I mean, everybody did pretty like recognizable famous yeah. people for the most part. I was gonna say this was that was some nailed it ass shit instead yeah, of a yeah. b- Great British Bake Off challenge, but yeah. Um, yeah,
1: Tom DeLonge, and he's not like Tom DeLonge is not okay. Like he he's <laughs> is fully... he the cons-
0: the alien yes, guy? Yes, he's the alien guy,
1: and that's what we're talking about today, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking about how Tom DeLonge is a conspiracy theorist. No, um, in fact, I had promised this episode for a very long time. I promised this episode in. I actually teased it in our previously mentioned trivia night <laughs> uh, that you may or may not have attended, um, and uh, but music episodes are such. Are, are a lot of work for us. So, um, but this one, can I tell you the amount of joy doing this episode brought me, I was like beside myself, so excited to be doing this. So today we're going to talk about my favorite musical artist, uh, Peter Gabriel.
0: Hi there. Now you definitely shouldn't, it's good for us to enjoy the topics we're doing. Oh, absolutely! You know how many, especially when we did Dictator December. Oh, yeah, that it was, was rough. just like <sighs> it's a slog. I gotta do an eight-page book report about this guy. Yeah. So I'm glad that you picked a topic that brings you joy. Oh, I loved this. If I could do Peter
1: Gabriel every day, if I could do um, a different Peter Gabriel album for like an entire year, well, maybe how not many that albums
0: long. Albums does he have? Oh, I'm Are sure you'll tell me. Yeah, but. <laughs> The other thing is is I uh, this is going to happen throughout the episode guys. I am going to say, "Wait, I thought that was Phil Collins." I'm yeah. going to confuse the heck out of these two guys.
1: I and you know what? I got you covered. Okay. You'll you'll know the difference by the time. And I and I'll also tell you why you get them confused. Okay. Thank you. So here we go. Here Here we go. Here we go. Peter Gabriel. Peter Brian Gabriel in fact. He was born on February 13th, 1950 in Chobham Surrey, UK. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but it looks like Chobham. So I'm going to go with Chobham. Uh, he learned to play the piano from his mother, and he developed an interest in drumming. In fact, he started off um, on the drums, uh, though his teachers noticed his talent in singing as well. Uh, he also was, a growing up, like a huge fan of R&B and soul music, American R&B and soul music. Mm. And he frequently says Otis Redding was his biggest influence. He oh, was wow. such a huge fan of his. And... So, and we'll talk about like the influence of R&B and soul on his music moving forward. So he remarked of his early influences, hymns played quite a large part, he said. Oh. They were the closest I came to soul
0: music before I discovered soul music. Time out. <laughs> Sorry. I now realize that you're saying H-Y-M-N-S, but sometimes when Lauren's talking about like a good dog or something, she yeah, something be like, cute. oh, hymns is so cute. So I thought you were saying like hymns was so influenced <laughs> hymns, i just love him he's so cute hymns is such a cute little man
1: <laughs> no i'm talking about him like you like, like you listen to in church sing in church okay he said there are certain hymns that you can scream your lungs out on and i used to love that it was great when you used to get the old shivers down your back so at age 12 he wrote his first song which was called sammy the slug which is adorable <gasps> do we have that we no, have? we don't. We do not have a clip of Sammy the Slug. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> if you know uh, Peter Gabriel, please get him in touch with me first, so I can fangirl. And two, so we can get the original court recording of Sammy the Slug. Um, also, around this time, an aunt gave him money for professional singing lessons, but he was not interested. So he used it to buy the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me. So he just did not have much interest in being a singer. Wow. So in September of 1963, he started at Charter House, which was a public school in Godalming, Surrey. Another very, there's going to be a Mm, lot of British words here. Uh, There he was a drummer and the vocalist for his first band, which is the Trad Jazz Outfit. Trad Jazz in the UK is short for traditional jazz. Um, We mentioned in the Sister Rosetta Tharp episode that, you know, jazz was very big and, you know, Southern American music was very big in England. And so Trad Jazz was an offshoot of that in the UK. Um, He was in a Trad Jazz band um, and they were called the Malords. As in, "Hello, my lord." Ugh. I know. It's Did they all so tip British. their jaunty caps? Uh, probably. Um, and this was followed by a holiday band called the Spoken Word, and I was like, "What the hell is a holiday band?" Apparently, it's just the British version of like, uh, like a wedding band or like, okay. a,
0: like a yeah, you know, like a you hire them yeah, for a party events. band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay.
1: So in '65, Gabriel formed the band Garden Wall with school friends Tony Banks on piano and Chris Stewart on drums. And Banks had started at Charterhouse at the same time as Gabriel, and the two were uninterested in school activities, but bounded over music and started to write songs. Um, At a final concert before they split, Gabriel, dressed in a caftan and beads, showered the audience with petals he had picked from neighboring gardens. So this was the beginnings of his, um, we'll call it theatricality in live performances. So was he the singer of this band? He was the singer in this band, yes. So in 67, after Garden Wall had disbanded, Gabriel Banks and Stewart were invited by fellow pupils Anthony Phillips and Mike Rutherford to work on demo tapes of songs. Uh, Gabriel and Banks contributed She Is Beautiful, the first song that they wrote together. And the tape was sent to former charterhouse pupil-turned-musician Jonathan King, who was immediately enthusiastic, largely due to Gabriel's vocals. And we'll, we'll talk more about this, but and you'll notice it in the songs that I play, but Peter Gabriel has a very distinctive tenor. Mm-hmm. He has a kind of a raspy quality to it. He's got a lot of range, surprisingly, mm. for someone who really just kind of tends to sing in just like one area for the most part. But... Um, yeah, he has a very, like, rich, raspy tenor. So this made an impression. Um, this guy signed the group and suggested the band name of Gabriel's Angels, but it wasn't popular with the other members. And Peter Gabriel has mentioned, like, I really liked uh, Gabriel's Angels, and I thought it was a really good idea, but I guess everybody else didn't like it. Like <laughs> He kind of joked around about it. So they settled on King's other suggestion, which is Genesis.
0: Uh-huh. yeah. Phil Collins. Yes.
1: So, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Yeah, here we go. All right. So after King suggested that they stick towards more straightforward pop, Gabriel and Banks wrote The Silent Sun as a pastiche of the Bee Gees, who was one of King's favorite bands. So they were kind of like playing to this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, It eventually became Genesis's first single, released in 1968, and it was included on their first studio album, which is called From Genesis to Revelation.
0: 1968. Yeah. 1968. Why did I think they're just an 80s band? Well, I mean, I. Sorry. No, it's okay. We'll I'm talk the, about, it. I'm, about listen, it. I'm the listen. I'm the audience <laughs> yeah. in this episode. Yeah,
1: you're just the avatar for the audience. Totally okay. Um, in that album, this is when we first see Peter Gabriel playing the flute. So he just
0: picked like up the flute.
1: Yes, like Lizzo. <laughs> exactly like Lizzo. Peter Gabriel and Lizzo, both <laughs> flautists. There's it's, our Venn diagram. Yes, there's our Venn diagram. Flute is in the middle. <laughs> Um, So after the commercial failure of From Genesis to Revelation, the band went their separate ways, and Gabriel continued his studies at Charterhouse. In September of 1969, Gabriel, Banks, Rutherford, and Phillips decided to drop their plans and make Genesis a full-time working band. So in early 1970, Gabriel played the flute on Mona Bone Jacone. from 1970. That's a Cat Stevens record. Okay. Mona Bone Jacone. Uh, the second Genesis album, which is called Trespass, uh, marked Gabriel expanding his musical output with the accordion, tambourine, and bass drum, and incorporate his soul music influences. Um, and he wrote the lyrics to "The Knife," which is a parody of a protest song. It's a nine and a half minute song. It's actually surprisingly good, I would say.
0: Question mark. How much of that is
1: words? Um, it's pretty good. He has kind of like a like a rap like cadence through okay. the entirety of it. It's very
0: interesting. So it's not just like a minute of singing and nine minutes of a jam Um, band.
1: No, it's, it's pretty, I mean, there's, don't worry, there's long stretches of noodling, but yeah. Um, So the album sold not very well. And at one point, Peter Gabriel secured a place at the London School of Film Technique because Genesis, quote, seemed to be dying. Um, Then the band recruited guitarist Steve Hackett and Peter Gabriel's cousin, Phil Collins. They're cousins. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins are cousins and they're still very close. Um, so Phil Collins took over as the drummer. Okay. Because Peter Gabriel is now more flautist, accordionist lead singer. And so I didn't know
0: he played the accordion. Yeah.
1: So their next album was called nursery crime. Cryme, yeah, uh, from 1971, and this also featured Peter Gabriel playing the oboe. So he was just like just picking just up, picking up stuff and picking up things on to him. blow
0: in and mm-hmm.
1: making it sound good. Uh, the opener is called "The Musical Box." Uh, this was their first song in which Peter Gabriel incorporated a story and characters into the lyrics. Mm. So um, his storytelling kind of comes and goes throughout his career. He tells like th- there will always be at least one song on an album of his um, either in Genesis or as a solo artist where there's a very like narrative quality to the song. Um, So that's, that's another like kind of highlight of his style is that he tends to be very literary Mm. in a lot of ways. So the live show supporting Foxtrot, which came out in 1972 marked a key development in Peter Gabriel's stage performance. Um, He had started to recite stories to introduce numbers as a way to cover the silence between songs, You know, while the bands tuned their instruments or while technical faults were being fixed. So he just started like telling stories Um, during a gig in Dublin in September of 1972. He disappeared from the set during the instrumental section of the musical box and reappeared in his wife's red dress and a fox's head mimicking the album's cover. So the the album cover of Foxtrot features like a a woman's body with a fox head in like a, a in the sea. Mm hmm and he apparently kept the idea to himself as he felt like the band would have voted against it so so he just like did it
0: so they're playing the instruments and he just disappears he just it
1: disappears and they're like all right and then he comes bink, back bink, out
0: pink big
1: and he's he's got a full fox head and a woman's <laughs> dress on yep um, so despite some initial doubts from his bandmates, the incident received front page coverage in melody maker, which was a music magazine, mm-hmm. um, in the UK which gave them national exposure, which allowed the group to double their performance fee. So, All right. um, and also one of his stories was printed on the liner notes of their live album, Genesis live from 1973. And by late that year, following the success of selling England by the pound from that year. Um, which centered around English themes and literary references. A typical Genesis show had Peter Gabriel wearing fluorescent makeup, a cape and bat wings, uh, a helmet, chest plate, and a shield, and various costumes for you know different songs. So one of the things that he would do is he would like, <clears throat> he had these alter egos that he would kind okay. of create for the stage show. It was very theatrical. He would wear different costumes. He would shave his hairline back a lot or shave his head completely and he would joke later because now he had lost his hair yeah by the time he was in his 50s um he joked that you know it was like his his hair's payback for uh, like shaving his head times. all the time yeah. in like creative ways
0: so he's he's like uh elton this is reminding me of like elton
1: yeah so this is so genesis was considered a, a prog rock or progressive okay. rock um Group and around this time, it wasn't so much like there was glam rock for sure in the 70s, okay. mostly in the late 70s. But this was kind of the beginning of like, um, like Baroque, you know, different instrumentation, kind mm-hmm. of incorporating classical music, incorporating like, you know, literary themes and ancient poetry. Okay. It was a very like return to kind of like arts yeah. and craftsy medieval, not just kind like of thing.
0: my girl, yeah, left me, yeah, and it, yeah. What else did they sing songs about? Mister <laughs> you know, like Sandman, you know, yeah. Uh, other <laughs> good songs of the sixties and seventies. Songs in the sixties and seventies, just like that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it was a calmer time, then. Yeah,
1: it's very, and it was very theatrical. And he was somebody who really enjoyed the kind of theatricality of music at the time, and really took advantage of it. And also, like, it got them a lot of attention. So he was like, "Yeah, I don't care. I don't, I'm ter- perfectly fine making kind of a doofus of myself on stage." Mm-hmm. Because people like it. So the last album that Peter Gabriel made with Genesis was called The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway from 1974. Um, and he devised its story of the spiritual journey of Rael, who was a Puerto Rican youth living in New York City and the bizarre incidents and characters he meets along the way. So it's a concept album about this character named Rael. So, um, also tensions kind of increased during this period as Peter Gabriel wanted to write all of the lyrics himself. And he split with the band after direct director, William Friedkin had invited him to work on a screenplay. Mm. Um, that project unfortunately dissolved and Gabriel returned to work with Genesis, but then, you know, his first daughter was born and his wife had had a very difficult birth and it, you know, took time away from the band because he was always going mm-hmm. home. So in and the everyone end, everyone was like,
0: you can't just write all the songs, mate. Yeah.
1: So and it, and also he was late to return like bring the lyrics uh. to the band because he is also known for being like very much a perfectionist on himself. Okay. So the reason why there's so many years in between his albums is because he works very slowly. Okay. Like he'll do the instrumentation on a song first and write the lyrics like when he feels like it and that might be
0: years or months. So he's or the whatever. George R. R. Martin.
1: He is the George R. R. Martin. Of 70s music, rock. Of 70s rock, yeah, for sure. Um, so in the liner notes for Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, Gabriel is credited with, quote, experiments with foreign sounds. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm going to play The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is my favorite Genesis song. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, and it, in the song, you can hear Phil Collins's voice. Which is kind of cool. Okay. Um, but here I'm going to start playing it now. So this song is probably their most I'd say like commercial song of okay. of this genesis period. Um it you know it takes you know samples from like Broadway songs mm-hmm. and it's a tight 5 minutes long which <clears throat> sounds extraordinarily long uh but you know th- thinking that most prog rock songs were like Seven minutes long or nine minutes long, and like a lot of jamminess. Also, uh, side note: there's (laughs) there's this uh, pimple patch company called Rail that uh, I use, and every time I go to use one, I see Rail. And then Steve wonders why I'm singing like the entirety of the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway before (laughs) before we go to bed, because I'm always like, I'm (laughs) Rail. So I am an extremely cool person. Um, anyway, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. That is probably like, when you think of Genesis, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is probably the song that you would think of.
0: I don't know if I've ever heard that song it's okay. before.
1: It's okay. It's a prog rock song. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, uh, it. I don't think it was ever like really played on mainstream mm-hmm. radio at any point. Like, unless you're really seeking it out, you wouldn't really know. Okay. So during a stop in Cleveland, Ohio, early in the albums tour, uh, Peter Gabriel informed the band of his intention to leave at its conclusion. He was like, I'm out after this guys. Um, music critics often focused their reviews on his theatrics and took the man's musical performance as secondary, which definitely irritated the rest of the band. (laughs) Um, The tour ended in May 1975, after which uh, he wrote a piece for the press on August 15th entitled Out Angels Out about his departure, his disillusion with the business, and his desire to spend time with his family. Um, The news stunned fans of the group and left commentators wondering if the band could survive without him. And his exit resulted in drummer Phil Collins reluctantly taking over the lead vocals after 400 singers were fruitlessly auditioned.
0: Oh, Boy. Yeah. That's too many. That's
1: too many people to audition. And the reason why you confuse them is because they have very similar voices. Like singing voices. And they're related. Yeah, and they're related. I mean, there's, you know, you can say a lot about that, but yeah, I mean they both started in the same band. Mm-hmm. Um, they both reached like pretty good levels of mm-hmm. fame. I would argue like more Phil Collins more mainstreamly. Like? I wouldn't say so. Peter Gabriel's like tall and um For a while, he had a lot of hair. Phil Collins is kind of small and dark, you know? Okay. Um, But yeah, they're cousins, so there's some family resemblance, I would imagine. But if you weren't that familiar with either of them as musicians, if you heard a song on the radio, you could definitely be like, oh, is that Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel? Great. So there's nothing wrong with you being confused by that. So, let's move into his solo career, which is when I really got into she Peter lit Gabriel. lit up, everybody. Oh, my face. God. I, ugh, I love this stuff. So, he described his break from music as his learning period, which he took piano and music lessons during. Uh, he had recorded demos by the end of 1975, which was the fruits of a period of writing about 20 songs with his friend Martin Hall. So, after preparing material for an album, he recorded his solo debut, which is just called Peter Gabriel in 1976 and 1977 in Toronto and London with producer Bob Ezrin. Um, Just as an FYI, he did not title his first four albums. All were called Peter Gabriel, and they all used the same typeface with designs by the same company called Hypnosis. Uh, And he said, the idea is to do it like a magazine, which will only come out once a year. Uh, so it's the same title, the same lettering in the same place, only the photo is different. So I'll be using the nicknames for the albums. Okay. They're given names based on the cover art. Okay. Um, so Peter Gabriel one is also called car because it's a picture of him inside of a car. All right. Okay. Yeah. All so,
0: right. I, there's, there's some wheels are clicking in my head right yeah. now.
1: And, um, the fans and everybody basically—that's how they refer to these albums. So there's there's Car, Scratch, Melt, and Security. But we'll get to them. Um, so Car was released in '77 and reached number seven in the UK and number 38 in the US. Its lead single was Salisbury Hill. I know that song. Yes, you do know that song, and I'm going to be playing it. So it's uh, Salisbury Hill is an autobiographical song about a spiritual experience on top of Salisbury Hill in Somerset. Um, And he said, it's about being prepared to lose what you have for what you might get. It's about letting go. And many fans see it as his comment on kind of striking out his own after leaving Genesis. Mm. Um, Another interesting thing about this before I start playing um, the song is uh, it's written in 7-4 time, which is an unusual time signature. Um, and it has been described as giving the song a constant sense of struggle. Like you're walking Mm, up a hill. Um, and this was the first song where I realized that I could understand what time signatures were. (laughs) I am not a musical person at all, but, um, this was the time that I, uh, felt like I was like, Oh, I get it now. Like this is what seven, four time is. And we'll talk about it after I, I play it. But, uh, here we go. The information, just out to trust imagination. My heart going boom, boom, boom. Son, he said, grab your things. I've going to take you home. So it's this idea of like, like bum, 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 bum. bum. Bum 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 bum. You know, it's like, and that's seven, seven beats right. per. And I was like, when I first got that, I was like, oh my god! I remember I called my dad. I was like, Dad, Salisbury Hills seven seven four time. He's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was like, I get it now. I felt like 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 Salieri. I was like, I get it. I, I understand music.
0: Um, uh, movie editors love using that in the trailers. Oh, for trailers
1: things. for for um.
0: Like quirky coming of age, or, rom-coms. Or like a parent's, uh, the the story between a, a parent and their estranged child. Yes.
1: Oh, yeah. They love, like the Peter Gabriel music, once you start hearing these songs, you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. I've heard this in movies or TV or mm-hmm. in you know, previews or whatever, like you said. So Salisbury Hill was probably like the big song off of this album. Okay off of car off of car um the other one um the opening track is called Moribund the Burgermeister and that is v- a very like very prog rock song like unless you're into prog rock you are going to find Morabund the Burg- Burgermeister extremely weird i mean it has its it has its you know good points but it's certainly not like Salisbury Hill was like commercial people liked it and it was a thing so Um, In late 1977, he started recording the second Peter Gabriel album, which is called Scratch. And uh, he was recording this in the Netherlands. Scratch is just a photo of him and his like, it looks like he's scratching the front of the album. So there's like all these drag marks from his hands. Um, It, Scratch is not my favorite. It's fine. I mean, it's also very prog rocky. You can tell that he's like trying to figure out what he wants the sound to be. The standout track is probably Mother of Violence, which was written by him and his wife, Jill. Um, I'm not going to play it. It's fine. It's a nice, quiet little track with piano. It's perfectly fine. It's just Peter Gabriel 3 is much better. So this was released in June 78. The album went to number 10 in the UK and number 45 in the US. And his tour for the album lasted from August to December of 1978. And on this tour, he and his band shaved their heads. So again he's touring alone but he's still maintaining this level of theatricality. Mm. So um the third album is called Melt. Peter Gabriel 3 is called Melt. It's because it's a black and white photo of him and half of the the image of his face looks like it's melting. Okay. Um, he recorded this in England in 1979 and uh, he had developed an interest in African music and drum machines and later hailed the record as his breakthrough. So melt is definitely where he starts to incorporate African sounds, world sounds, a lot of like electronica that he was kind of playing with in the mm-hmm. studio. Um, so this is when you really start to hear his later sound that you start to hear like the you know quintessential, like Peter Gabriel album. Um, This album has also been credited as the first to use gated reverb on the drums, which created a distinct sound. Um, And I'll play what gated reverb sounds like for you uh, right now. So you may recognize this because it's on... Phil Collins's song in the air tonight that kind of like echoey Uh-oh. drum sound. Yeah. And um he kind of P- Peter Gabriel kind of in in quote unquote invented mm-hmm. this. It was actually like his sound guy invented this. Um but it's basically playing various rhythms without using cymbals for several minutes which he used to kind of develop the song further. Peter Gabriel hates cymbals. He thinks that they're filler sounds. He doesn't love them. So he had Phil Collins play this on the record. He, he actually was the drums on this record. And so he used it on In the Air Tonight, and that became kind of a signature sound in the 1980s and beyond. Yeah. So there was a lot of artists who used gated reverb on the drums. All right. Like Duran Duran, you hear it all the time. Mm. So Atlantic Records, which was Peter Gabriel's U.S. distributor, which had released his first two albums, refused to put it out. Uh, the Americans found it to be too esoteric. So uh, it was released in the UK in May 1980. The album went to number one for three weeks. Um, when it was finally released in the US, it peaked at number 22. Um, there, was also, there were a couple of singles, um, Games Without Frontiers and "Biko." And uh, he toured the album from February to October of 1980 and the tour marked his first instance of crowd surfing. Oh. So what he likes to do is put his back to the audience, put his hands in a crucifix position and just fall into the audience. And this became a staple of his live shows. Can you imagine
0: <laughs> being the first person to ever try this out? Like to to be like, and I'm going to have now, my... Here I go. I'm just going to fall blindly into the crowd and you guys are going to know exactly what yeah, to do. And
1: you know what what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just see how this works. Have you
0: ever been to a show where they did crowd surfing?
1: Um, yes. I went to a hello goodbye concert in college and the bass player who was dressed as a hot dog crowd surfed. And I think I put my hands on his lower back as he was being
0: pushed. Passed around. Yeah,
1: passed around.
0: Yes. I was at a Andrew WK concert. Oh, sure, of course. And there were <laughs> there were more crowd surfers there than the entirety of all of the concerts I'd ever been to in my life combined. You mean no one crowd-served at Taylor Swift? No. <laughs> or Coldplay, if you Weird. That's strange. But yeah, people would just like go up on the stage like while they're singing and then like just, <laughs>
1: just fall into
0: the crowd and then you just see all these bodies just like being passed. It was I, so bizarre. I feel like as a woman,
1: I would oh, not be able no, to You have to surf. wear pants. You have to wear Number pants. Number one. one pants, pants only. Yeah. Although I have watched... Um, uh, I have watched uh, Beyonce crowd surf, which seems insane that she would do that. But I've watched like a concert film of hers I'm and sure she someone,
0: just... I'm sure someone like cut off a chunk of her hair that, You'd while think they, they, they that, would, right? can I tell you something?
1: She literally took like a running leap off while singing. She was singing Halo. Running leap off the stage into the crowd. They gently, hand, like hand over hand, gently cradled her back to the stage. Like... I don't know how I'm sure they, arranged they her were all the hired. They're all hired people, but they were like, <laughs> okay, here we go. Brace <laughs> ourselves. She's going to jump into our arms because if I know anything about rabid Beyonce fans is that they want to tear her to pieces because they love her so because much. they love her so much. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so, Peter so anyway, Gabriel crowd Peter Gabriel, surfing, crowd surfing. So we're going to listen to a little bit of games without Frontiers." So you may or may not have heard this song, but this is, this is another like big Peter Gabriel song. so this is a song about war this is a song about you know you know it's it's a it's a great song i love it um a cool thing about games without frontiers that i should mention is that it has a very famous misheard lyric okay misheard lyrics are called mondegreens Mm -hmm. i didn't know if you knew that um, so I'm going to play this part of the song, uh, where you'll hear this. Um, but it's, I, tell me what you think this sounds like. So so it's tough because he's singing
0: in a, in a falsetto. Yeah, I hear him like, she's so fucking there.
1: Yeah. So it's this, that lyric People think it's either she says "fuck you all," okay,
0: or she's so
1: punctual. Oh, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. What is it? It's actually "jus sans frontières." Okay, yeah, yeah, but it's it's a very classic, like misheard lyric of his. Um, Does he sing other things in French? Uh, yeah, there's he sings a lot of things in different languages. Okay, um, uh, most often in uh, you know, funny you should mention that. In the next single,
0: uh, which was Biko,
1: so it's a song about Steve Biko, um, who was an anti-apartheid activist, okay. South African activist.
0: I couldn't tell what word you were
1: saying. Oh, there was it was Biko. I was B-I-K-O. like, Beat-ko. You know, like
0: where you go get your beats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, beat co. Um, But uh, this is uh, just a quick sample of Biko.
0: So much happening.
1: Yeah, there's a lot happening. So there's bagpipes. There's bagpipes. There's, there's drums, drums. There's uh in in later in the in the song, it's a seven and a half minute song. Um, later in the song, there is an African choir of of women. There he sings in 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 African in Senegalese. It's like it's a lot. Wow. And for a while, he would close his shows with it. Okay, um, especially in the eighties when okay. when anti-apartheid was was a big thing. Um, so that was his other like, and this is also kind of uh, a touchstone of when he started really getting into African music. Okay. And using African musicians and singers on a regular basis. So um on Peter Gabriel 4, which is also known as Peter Gabriel Security, and we'll get into why it's called security, but um, he took on a great greater responsibility over the production than ever before. He recorded it in 1981 and 1982 solely on digital tape with a mobile studio parked at his home, which is called Ashcombe House in Somerset. And he would also record um, So there. Um, this album, released in September of 1982, hit number six in the UK, number 28 in the US. Uh, the second single, which is called Shock the Monkey, became Gabriel's first top 40 hit in the US, reaching number 29 and uh, to handle American distribution, Gabriel signed with Geffen Records, which initially unbeknownst to Gabriel, titled the album Security to differentiate it from the first three. So they just called it Security. What's the picture? The picture is of, and I cannot tell you what this is of. Oh, okay. I'll show you a, a picture of it.
0: It's like a- I it, don't care for this No, picture. it's very frightening. Um... Uh. Is there like a super villain that is like a metal face?
1: Ooh, yeah. It's like I'm thinking of like a children's cartoon something. Yeah. Right? It looks Are you like there's a scary
0: metal faced villain on a like a like a coach bus. Yeah. And this yeah. is like a security it looks footage like, of him.
1: It does look like security footage. And I think that's probably where that's coming from. I Um, don't
0: care for the cover. No, it's
1: very, it's very freaky deaky. Um, So yeah, so that's security. Um, So the 1982 tour, supporting this album lasted for a year and became his first to actually make a profit. So (laughs) that's good. This is his fourth solo album. This is the first time he's making money. (laughs) 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 He's been around since 1968. (laughs) So recordings from this tour were released on his debut live release, which is called Plays Live from 1983. Um so we're going to listen to Shock the Monkey. monkey, monkey,
0: monkey. Don't you know you're gonna Shock the monkey. Hey, hey. Fox, the fox. Right the right. can... So this is has... Who's who? What is why are they what are they going to do to the monkey uh, well
1: some say that the monkey is actually a penis um some say it's just kind of like a you know kind of a flight of fancy a commentary about war
0: you know is shock spelled s h o c k yep.
1: like shock like like Electric electrocute shock. the monkey yeah um some say it's like a commentary about like you know animal uh testing
0: what about uh man's inhumanity to man? <laughs> man maybe it's about
1: man's inhumanity to man you know it has a lot of you Know, um, unusual and hard to read themes, okay. we'll say, but it has a funky beat, and people really liked it. Um, also, just as an FYI, he produced versions of the third and fourth Peter Gabriel albums, um, Melt and Security, with German lyrics. Uh, in 1983, he developed the soundtrack for Alan Parker's film Birdie. Um, so he, he's done a couple of film soundtracks, um, and it that album consisted of new material as well as remixed instrumentals from his previous studio album. So a lot of times when he does um, a soundtrack he will kind of remix s- songs that he has kind of in the I guess in the hopper or mm-hmm. songs that he already already has on an album. Alright. Uh, so after finishing the soundtrack to Birdie, he shifted his musical focus from rhythm and texture as heard on 4 and birdie toward more just like straightforward songs songs with three verses, four choruses and a bridge, you know? (laughs) So in 1985, he recorded his fifth studio album, which is called So, which he co-produced with Dan Lenoir. Um, and he was more of a cult artist before this. Like he had a lot of fans, but they were, they, he had like a cult following. He really wasn't somebody who was like, you know, going to the Grammys all the time Mm -hmm. and like, you know, dating superstars and all this stuff. So it took him a full year to make this record. Mm-hmm. So they did it at Ashcombe house. Uh, and he had all of his musicians and engineers and sound guys and everybody just hang out at his house. And, um, one of the engineers, his name is Kevin Killen. Um, he, it, there's a documentary about the making of so on, uh, Amazon prime and you should definitely check it out. It's called like making the album. So, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's only an hour long and it's kind of like song exploder where, you know, they go through each individual song and just kind of talk about how it was made. And Kevin Killen said that he was picked up at the, at Heathrow airport from with a driver. And, uh, the driver was like, Oh, so you're coming to Peter's and you're going to record an album. And he was like, yeah. And he was like, how long do you think you're going to be here? And this was in like March of 85. And he said, Oh, they told me like six to eight weeks or whatever. And he went, Hmm. Okay. Uh, you're going to be here till next May. Eh. And he was, he was, it was like almost to the date. like, he was there for 10 months and
0: then Peter Gabriel hired the driver (laughs) to be his project manager.
1: Exactly. Cause he just, he works so slowly and he's such a perfectionist that, and we'll talk about that, but, um, it actually was the shortest time it took him to make a record so far, (laughs) which is just a year. Um, he didn't want a title. He doesn't like titles. Uh, he thinks, he, he thinks that titles make text on an album cover makes it look like an advertisement. So, like, what he likes the idea of, like, looking. Does he think that books with a title on <laughs> them,
0: know, right, also look like an advertisement?
1: <laughs> I think he thinks because he likes the visual of an album cover, like, like a vinyl album, you know, like the big uh-huh. square image. And he said, "I like that, and I, I feel like text makes it looks like look like an ad." But his producers and the, the, they're like man you gotta they're like you need to title this, okay <laughs> So he said, I'm going to go with the best looking two-letter word because the less letters you have, the bigger you can make them and you get top billing uh, So he really liked the the letter s and the the letters O like next to each other. He really liked how that looked so so means nothing It doesn't mean anything it was just kind of the visual of it. This is my favorite Peter Gabriel album it is top to bottom left to right an absolutely perfect album it is phenomenal there is not a clunker on the whole thing it's amazing i can wax poetic about literally every single song on this album i could do an entire episode on so i'm not going to but i want you to know it's very good <laughs> she's she's
0: very passionate i am folks. extremely
1: passionate about so and we'll listen to some ep- we'll listen to some clips from so And it was, can I tell you, extremely hard to pick the songs to play on the show. Okay. (laughs) Just so you know. Um, So it was released in May of 1986. It reached number one in the UK and number two in the US. This Mm. was his biggest hit so far. It remains Gabriel's best-selling album with over 5 million copies sold in the US alone. It produced three UK top 20 singles, Sledgehammer, Big Time, and Don't Give Up, which is a duet with Kate Bush, and we'll hear it. Um. Don't give up was based on Dorothy Lang photos of the dust bowl and great depression. Oh. The, st- the story of the song is a man has lost his job and he feels inadequate and that he can't support his family. And so his wife played kind of played by Kate Bush, who sings the chorus, um, is saying, don't give up. We love you. You have friends, you know, it's this, it's this story of these, this couple who are in kind of a, a tense conflict, um, but it's it's a very supportive song.
0: Not a lot of commercial artists singing about the Dust Bowl.
1: Right? It's it's kind of amazing. Especially those in England. Right? Well the thing is he wanted it to sound like a country song, like an old fashioned mm. country song of like a back and forth with a man and a woman. And originally he wanted to duet with Dolly Parton on it. Oh, he was like, "I love Dolly Parton, I love her voice. I want her on the album." And because no one had ever heard of him at this point, oh she reached, he reached out to her people and they were like, "No, that's
0: okay. We don't know who you are."
1: <laughs> like they thought he was just like some guy.
0: I bet if Dolly would have gotten the actual request, she would have done it.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I like to think so too. Yeah. Um, the song has kind of a gospel piano like soul quality to it, and we'll listen to it, but it's interesting. Um, Sledgehammer. Uh, went number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Uh, it's his only single of his career to do so. Um, it knocked off Invisible Touch by Genesis from the top spot, which was also their only U.S. number one. Oh, top hit. how about that? Yeah. Uh, in the U.K., the single went to number four. In 1990, Rolling Stone ranked so at number 14 on its list of top 100 albums of the 80s. It's very influential. Um, let's talk about Sledgehammer and the music video for a second. Okay. So Sledgehammer was particularly successful. As I mentioned, it dealt with sex and sexual relations through lyrical innuendos. Uh, it's famed music video was a collaboration between director Stephen R. Johnson, Ardman animations, which are the Wallace and Gromit people. Okay. Chicken run. Yeah. Like chicken run. Uh, And the Brothers Quay, and it won uh, a record nine MTV Video Music Awards in 1987. All right. If you haven't seen it, it's very good. It's a stop motion uh, music video. Mm -hmm. It took them two weeks to do it, and they did everything in camera. And because, you know, like, you can animate objects around him, but he was also, like, trying to make the mouth, you know, like, shape of each of the individual, like, phonemes Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the song which is only like three and a half minutes long and then they had to paint his face and they had to do stuff with his hair and all this stuff so it's it's really intense and they touch on it in the in the documentary as well as well uh in 1998 it was named mtv's number one animated video of all time Uh, so earned Gabriel two wins at the 1987 Brit Awards for best British male solo artist and best British video for sledgehammer. He was nominated for four Grammy awards, best male rock vocal performance song of the year and record of the year for sledgehammer and album of the year for. So Uh, he toured worldwide to support. So with the, this way up tour from November of 86 to October of 87. Um, sledgehammer was not supposed to be on this album. Oh, uh, he says that people are always like, wow, you must've really wanted to like, you really nailed it with that. Like you were looking to write a hit right with the song. And he was like, no, I, he, he's, they were packing up the studio and Tony Levin, his bass player, who's who went to Eastman school of music, by the way, Oh, about okay. uh, that. his bass player was like, we were literally like, packing up the studio and Peter was like, Oh, Hey, do you guys mind? I want to try something that I'm working on for like the next album. Could we just like noodle this around for a little bit? Um, and you know, the rest is history. So it has like this R and B soul influence, and uh, Tony Levin mentioned that there were more women in the audience after a sledge at this after the sledgehammer video <laughs> got huge. Um, so we're gonna talk about sledgehammer.
0: Friends. And if you watch the video, you know. I think I, I think I know this.
1: Yeah. This is, if you're going to hear a Peter Gabriel song like playing in Target, this is the one you're going to hear. In fact, I think I saw, I, I heard, heard this song in <laughs> recently in Target. Um, so uh, the other single, Don't Give Up, will play right now with... Uh, our girl
0: Kate Bush, Kate Bush. I'm looking at the sledgehammer video and there's a sperm. Bam. Yeah. Oh yeah. Starts with a sperm. Yeah.
1: Starts with sperm. Um, yeah. You see blood coursing through blood vessels. You see like, yeah. Microscope. <laughs> you see his eyeball. I mean, the, one of the lyrics is show me around your fruit cage. Cause I will be your honeybee. Open up your fruit cage where the fruit is as sweet as can be. It's you know, it's sexy. It's a sexy song for a guy who's just like a a <laughs> British guy. Um, so here's "Don't give up with Kate Bush." No one wants you when you lose. So it's a very straightforward, sweet kind of like
0: the music is so eighties. I feel like I'm in the, I'm feel like I'm in a Montgomery Ward.
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's very eighties. And the music video is literally just Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush just clutching each other. And wh- when he's singing it, the camera pans around to his side mm-hmm. and he sings. And then when she's singing the chorus, it pans around to her side and she sings. It's amazing. Um, you know, Kate Bush is a, an acquired taste, but running up that hill. Oh my I love God. That I oh, I love that song. Um, so now we're going to talk about my, not only my favorite Peter Gabriel song, this is my favorite song. Be all end all. All right. It's in your eyes. You've heard the song, song. We've all heard this song. We've all danced at a wedding to this song or watched people dance at a wedding to this song. Um, it was not my wedding song because I didn't want to be cliche. <laughs> uh, but it's just so beautiful. So. The grand facade So sweet. Um, so this song has a lot of African influences in it. In fact, uh, Yusou Ndour, who is an African artist, um, sang several parts in mm-hmm. this song. And you can hear it towards the end of this, of the of the album version of the song. The live version is, this is the first time I will say this about anything. <laughs> the live version of the song is phenomenal. It is incredible. Um, there's way more of like an anthemic quality to mm-hmm. it. It's beautiful. It's moving. There's way more of you saw Nador, like really taking it and running Mm -hmm. with it. Um, There's a whole verse that did not make it to the album that he always sings live, which is uh, beautiful. It's just like an incredible verse, but in your eyes is based around African music that is both religious and about romantic love. It's about both of these things. And Mm -hmm. and Peter Gabriel is really like, um, really attracted to that. Um, his, uh, his drummer, who's a French African man named Manu Kente. He recalls him in the studio and he said he was dancing like an African, but you know, Peter British, great face, (laughs) great smile, but he was trying to dance like the African guys. He was just going for it. (laughs) But that gave me the permission to just let go. And Mm -hmm. when he performs this live and when he, I should say performed this live, the man's 70 now, he's not really, you know, going for it anymore. Like he would bring these African musicians and artists, with him on tour mm-hmm. um to play with his band and he would have African dancers and he would just like let door just kind of go, like sing whatever he wanted yeah. to and interact with the crowd and that kind of thing. So the thing about Gabriel's music is that he's very influenced by African ar- artists and African music, but he brings them into his fold and does not and lets them do what they want to do. He gives them a lot of freedom to put their own mark on his music and mm-hmm. it's more the better for it. You know what I mean? Um, so this is something that is like very indicative of his like working style. He's all very right. collaborative for someone who is uh, ar- arguably very famous. Um, in your eyes, there are 96 different versions of the song that they recorded on tape. Oh my God. And they had it, all the versions on, on pieces of paper in the studio. And they literally chopped it up bar by bar and mixed it. So they would say like, okay, bar one, take 37 was the best version of this. And they had to do this uh, with like real, like tape, like digital tape. So it was crazy. It's wild, but it's a perfect song. Um, <laughs> Another song on the album is called mercy street. That was based on Anne Sexton, the poet and her poetry. All right. Um, it, that is also an extremely beautiful song. I mean, it, red rain, the opening track is incredible. It sounds like that song sounds like rain. It sounds like a storm coming in like very violently. It's incredible. So anyway, I could keep going about. So, but I will not because in 1988, Peter Gabriel became involved as a composer for Martin Scorsese's film, the last temptation of Christ. Uh, Scorsese had contacted D- Gabriel about the project since 1983 and wished, according to Gabriel, to present the struggle between the humanity and divinity of Christ in a powerful and original way. Uh, Gabriel used musicians from WOMAD to perform instrumental pieces with focus on rhythm and African, Middle Eastern and European textures using the national sound archive in London for additional inspiration. Uh, Its soundtrack was released as Passion in June of 1989, and it won him a Grammy Award for Best New Age Performance and a nomination for a Golden Globe for Best Original Score, Motion Picture. And in 1990, he put out his first compilation album called Shaking the Tree, 16 Golden Greats, which sold 2 million copies in the U.S. Uh, From 89 to 92, he recorded his follow-up to So, entitled Us, so this is the second of his two letter. Because he likes
0: how the S looks.
1: Yeah, he loves how and the S looks. he wants
0: the vowel next to it. Yep, exactly.
1: Yeah, oh, you'll see the, the third one. Oh, boy. Uh, so this album saw him address personal themes, including his failed first marriage, psychotherapy, and the growing distance between him and his eldest daughter at the time. Oh, I should mention, In Your Eyes is about Rosanna Arquette, who... Like the guy from Toto wrote the song Rosanna about her too. Like she dated a bunch of eighties musicians and they like fell hard for Rosanna Arquette. (sighs) Yeah. And, um, Gabriel's first wife, Jill had an affair with his like producer and she is quoted as saying, um, I tried to hurt him and he hurt me worse by putting out the best album of his career. And it was all about our breakup. Um, so that was just like one of those things. But Mm -hmm us is very, very much about psychotherapy, about like inner turmoil, about exploring that. And also this idea of trying to connect with his eldest daughter who, you know, he didn't have a great relationship with at the time and, you know, grief and longing and all of this stuff. So us is also very, very good. Um, and so his introspection within the context of the album, us can be seen in the first single release, which is called digging in the dirt. Um, so there was, it was accompanied by this disturbing video featuring him covered in snails and various foliage, and uh, the song made reference to the psychotherapy, which he had
0: taken up much of his time. Is this a throwback to his first song, Sammy the Slug?
1: Yes, maybe it is. Maybe it was like deep in the recesses of his brain that it was all about Sammy the Slug. Who knows? Um, so he also describes his struggle to get through to his daughter in Come Talk to Me. Um, which is another great song off the album. It features backing vocals by Sinead O'Connor. Oh, um, she also lent vocals to "Blood of Eden," which is another song on the album, um, and that was the third single to be released. And uh, once again, dealt with relationship struggles. This time, going right back to like Adam's Rib from Inspiration. Jeez. Oh, uh, the result was one of his most personal albums and it met with less success than so it reached number two in the album chart on both sides of the Atlantic and made modest chart impacts with the singles digging in the dirt and the funkier steam, which steam is almost a clone of sledgehammer. It's very, it's, <laughs> it's very similar. I don't find if it you play very it interesting. Yeah. If you played it backwards, it's definitely the same thing. So he followed the release of the album with a world tour. Um, and an accompanying double CD and DVD called Secret World Live. If you can find that d- that documentary, it's ugh, so good. And Paula Cole would fill in for Sinead O'Connor's vocal role, and yeah. she toured with him. And in the segment of Secret World Live where he's doing "Come Talk to Me," he's coming out of a phone booth, mm-hmm. but the and he's holding the phone, and he's like being dragged back into the phone booth by the phone cord, and he's like okay. trying to reach. Paula Cole yeah and she's singing to him and they're reaching toward each other it's very yeah. like very theatrical it's she's very like I don't want to wait yeah exactly she doesn't want to wait um so he won three more Grammy awards all in the music video category because he was a, a brilliant music video conceptual artist. Uh he won the Grammy award for best short form music video in 93 and 94 for the videos to Digging in the Dirt and Steam respectively. Hmm. He also won the 96 Grammy award for best long form music video for his Secret World Live video. Um so we're going to talk about Digging in the Dirt. I only have I only have these two from this album. Again, us is also a very good album don't get me wrong um but I, th- I feel like so just has more like h- just solid
0: I don't want to say hits all right. you're I allowed mean, to have a favorite album oh
1: yeah no I know but I mean you know it's like trying to talk about your favorite children I guess this time you've come to far
0: this time come
1: That's Digging in the Dirt. He didn't say that at all. Well, wait, hold on. Here we go. Here we go. It's so, like in parentheses. Yeah, Digging in the Dirt. So this song, and he does this a lot more in Up, but is this, you know, the, the verses are very angry. It's about mm. expressing yourself and like anger and pain and then the chorus will have more of a introspective like yeah. you know th- th- this is why I'm sad. This is why I feel this way kind of thing. Um, come Talk to Me I think is an underrated song. Why are you shaking like a leaf? Come on come talk to me it's a heartbreaking song. I mean it's it's really very like the the sound is very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um but it is like if you've ever had a difficult time with your father or it's just very like it hits you it hits home mm. in a major way. Um but it's it's excellent. I mean it you know there's the bagpipes, there's that you know, kind of like um drumline drumming.
0: I love a bagpipe. Oh, I love a bagpipe. It's great. I love an accordion. Mm. Do you think it's too late for me to learn these things? Absolutely not. You can do whatever you want. Oh, Maybe Lauren. you're really good at the bagpipes. Yeah, I'm like really good at the bagpipes. You might be. You just don't know. Whenever we do yard sales again, I'm going to see if I can... <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, score yourself <laughs> a cheap score bag myself <laughs> <Secondhand> bagpipe. Second half bagpipe. You can identify <laughs> me the whole way across town. You just hear... <laughs> bah. Bah. Yeah,
1: Josh is going to love that. <laughs> So is your daughter. Um,
0: Okay, so in
1: 97, he was invited to participate in the direction and soundtrack of the Millennium Dome show, which was a live multimedia performance stage in the Millennium Dome in London throughout 2000. Um, He said that the team was given free reign, which unfortunately contributed to the various problems they encountered with (laughs) it, such as a lack of proper budgeting. He also felt that management, while succeeding to get the building finished on time, failed to understand the artistic side of the show and its Mm. content.
0: I thought you were going to say, Uh, he said they were given free reign when in fact they had (laughs) not been. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: so his soundtrack was released as OVO all caps OVO, uh, in June of 2000. And he stuck with soundtrack work for his next, next project scoring for the Australian film called rabbit proof fence in 2002 with we've heard
0: about that. Yes. From our episode with Zoe. We did. And Peter Gabriel
1: scored the, uh, the score for that movie. So, um, the released in June of 2002 long walk home music from the rabbit proof fence received a golden globe award nomination for best original score.
0: So at this point, he's only won Grammy. He's only one Grammys. Yeah. He's only one Grammys. Okay. Yeah. Um,
1: up UP Gabriel's first full length studio album in a decade was released in September of 2002. Uh, he started work on it in 1995 before production halted three years later to focus time on other projects and collaborations. And work resumed in 2000, by which time Gabriel had 130 potential songs for the album. Oh my god! And spent almost two years on it before management at Virgin Records pushed him to complete it. They were like, "All right,
0: how many did he get done. it
1: down to?" He got. Ooh, I should check. Up, up has ten songs. Yeah. So uh, 132, 10. Oh, my gosh. So um, Up was, can I tell you, very influential on high school, Lauren. I listened to this album a thousand times, easily a thousand times. I listened to it every morning on my bus to school. And it's very intense, like, psychological, like, themes were very uh, seminal for a... A
0: very uh, tumultuously minded teen, Lauren. <laughs> so your classmates are listening to boy bands, yep, and like, tr- like trying to be like edgy rock, yes, and yep. like stuff that their mom doesn't Pop want punk. them to hear, yep. And there you are, blasting Peter Gabriel through your Walkman <laughs> on the bus.
1: Yep, yes, and I loved every minute of it. Again, I was not a popular teen. Um, it reached number nine in the U.S. And number eleven in the U.K. And it was supported with a world tour with a band that included his daughter, Melanie on backing vocals.
0: Oh, so she came and
1: talked to him. Yep. She came and talked to him and now she sings back up in his band, which is great. Yeah. Uh, the tour was documented with two live DVDs growing up live in 2003 and still growing up live and unwrapped in 2005. I'm only going to play one track off of this album. Again, this is a very good album. Almost every song is phenomenal. Very. Each one is like super different. Um, but I'm just going to play. Every
0: the- song is phenomenal. Like, pheno- like, like one thing is phenomenal, Lauren. Julia, this album rules.
1: <laughs> like, okay. All right. How about this? I'll, I'll mitigate this with every song on. So rules. Every song on, on
0: up is extremely good. All right. How about that? Okay. They're we'll going to think you're hyperbolic. You know, we're, we're an hour into the episode and you're just proclaiming that everything this fan does <laughs> well, is, I, I'm also, is
1: phenomenal. <laughs> I'm, I'm also like a huge fan. So you're going to have to take whatever I say with a grain of salt. But this is probably the happiest I've ever seen her. Yeah, doing, doing an, an episode, episode. I love this even guy. Even
0: more than the cheese long... <laughs> Even more than when we do fashion.
1: This is like my entire like listening to music like life. This is, I mean, Peter Gabriel has run underneath everything I've listened to my entire life. Why did it
0: take you this long? Why did it take you 182 episodes? Well, because I knew it was going to be so much work. <laughs> so anyway, so Up has a lot
1: of like industrial sounds, okay. surprisingly enough, and especially in darkness. So we'll listen to this. Up. And there's strings in the background.
0: Limp biscuit yeah No not
1: biscuit
0: yeah. of swimming
1: in the sea. So this like dropout. Um, so nine
0: inch nailsy,
1: nine inch nailsy for sure. I would, I would agree with that. Um, so darkness, this song is opening track. Uh, I remember I had, this will be burned in my brain for the rest of my life. I bought this at FYE. I was with Andres and I was like, can we listen to it in the car? Cause he picked me up. And so we were listening to it in the car and the opening of this song is very like, bing, bing, a bing, bing. So we like turned up the volume, like I can't hear it. And then when that Thing dropped. We both like. Thank God we were in the parking lot because we both like (laughs) drove (laughs) into a tree. (laughs) Practically drove into a tree. Um, But up has a lot. Okay, so Peter Gabriel has struggled with clinical depression. Some people Mm -hmm. say that he has bipolar. He hasn't been too super open about Mm -hmm. his mental health struggles, but. So Up and Us have a lot to do with, like, introspection, this idea of fear and pain and anger and dealing with that and having, like, two sides to yourself. And Darkness definitely has that word. Dar- mm-hmm. Like, that opening salvo of, like, very industrial sound. It sounds violent and, and confrontational. And then that sound completely drops out, and he's basically, like, whispering because he is coming from a place of pain and sadness. So... um up is very interesting in that way that there's like this really huge dichotomy, which is really interesting.
0: New metal. That's what I was trying yeah, to say. Yeah, it's very
1: of. new metal-y for sure. Absolutely. That's like corn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. So in November of 2006, the 7th World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates in Rome presented him with the Man of Peace Award. Uh, The award was presented by former president of the USSR and Nobel Peace Prize winner Mikhail Gorbachev and Walter Viltroni, who was the mayor of Rome. Uh, He was an acknowledgement of Peter Gabriel's extensive contribution and work on behalf of human rights and peace. Uh, He has a longstanding interest in human rights and launched Witness, which is a charity that trains human rights activists to use video and online technologies to expose human rights abuses. Um, he also works a lot with amnesty international. Mm. He's very involved in that kind of thing. Um, he also contributed to the Wally soundtrack in 2008, uh, including the film's closing song called down to earth with the Soweto gospel choir for which they received the Grammy award for best song written for a motion picture television or other visual media. And the song was also nominated for a golden Globe award for best original song and an academy award for best original song. Um, you may remember this song but I'm going to play just a little bit of it cuz it's very it's very s- sweet it's very, you know it's a children's movie um but it still has a little bit of Peter Gabriel like weirdness to it which you know you know your girl loves
0: We're coming down to the ground There's no better place to come We're we got snow upon the mountains, we got rivers down below. We're coming down to the ground, we hear the birds sing in the trees. And the land will be looked after, we send the seeds out in the trees. I know you're going to say the song is phenomenal. It's good. What did you think about Wally? Wally was fine. It was sad. Yeah. It was depressing, I found. I would rank it, uh, I know, the very controversial here. I would rank it as my one of my least favorite Pixar movies that I've seen. All right, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's some I haven't. Like, I didn't see, like, Cars 2. Yeah,
1: well, you know.
0: And nobody saw The Good Dinosaur. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, that's nobody too bad. saw it. No. no one saw it. No, that's too bad. No, I mean, I, I like the song. Um, You know, it's it's sweet, you know, light, nice Pixar movie. Music. I like the song more than I like the movie. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we're going to talk a little bit about his interest in world music. Uh, it was first apparent on his third solo album, as I mentioned before, melt, um, according to Spencer Kornhaber in the Atlantic in 2019 quote, when Peter Gabriel moved toward world music four decades ago, he not only evangelized sounds that were novel to Western pop. He also set a radio template majestic with flourishes meant to read as exotic and lyrics meant to change lives. This influence has increased over time, and he is the driving force behind the World of Music, Arts, and Dance, or WOMAD movement.
0: Okay, yeah, you mentioned that before, and I was like, I'm not sure what that word (laughs) is.
1: World of Music, Arts, and Dance. Um, He said, quote, The first time I really got into music from another culture was as a result of the shifting of Radio 4, which I used to wake up to. I'd lost it on a medium wave and was groping around in the morning on the dial trying to find something I could listen to and came across a Dutch radio station who were playing the soundtrack from some obscure Stanley Baker movie called Dingaka." That had quite a lot of stuff from, I think it was Ghana. I can't remember now, but it really moved me. One of the songs I heard on that was a thing called Shosholosa, which I recorded on the B-side of the Biko single. Um, He also created Real World Studios and the record label called Real World Studios uh, to facilitate the creation and distribution of such music by various artists and has worked to educate uh, Western culture about such musicians as Young Chen Lamo, who is a Vietnamese uh, artist uh, Nusrat Fateh Khan and Yosonador. Um, and he also uses a lot of like French and African and Brazilian and, uh, you know, w- lots of world musicians all around. So
0: it has nothing to do with what happens when strangers start getting real.
1: Oh yeah. Nope. It has nothing to tag do with the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stop, stop what? What do they stop doing? Being polite. Stop being polite and start getting real. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I miss that show. Um, so that is my, uh, that's my take on my favorite Peter Gabriel things. Um, I also made a Spotify playlist, which I will link in our social meds, Good. Um, so that you can hear all, all of the tracks that I talked about today. Um, but also a couple of my favorites. Good. Um, and if anything, if you take
0: anything away from it, it's that you should be able to identify Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel. hmm over Phil Collins. Yes, you should be able. <laughs> at the very
1: least, that's all I ask. Um, so my quiz today is about progressive rock bands.
0: Well, wonderful,
1: <laughs> great. <laughs>
0: Zero for ten. Oh well,
1: I I will give you lots of of um hints. So all right. yeah, question number one. This ever-changing prog rock band has been around since 1968 and has a huge cult following. With seminal albums such as In the Wake of Poseidon and Lark's Tongues in Aspic, this royal band has influenced prog rock acts for over 50 years. Who is this band whose two-word name involves an honorific and a color? Question number two. This oft-mocked prog rock folk band got a lot of heat in 1988 when they won the Grammy for best hard rock slash metal performance over Metallica's and Justice for All. You probably know them best for their flute. Who is this band who is named after an 18th century British agriculturalist? Question number three. This band was a favorite of my mother's growing up and was only active between 1970 and 1980. Unlike many of their prog rock contemporaries, their classical influences ranged beyond the romantic and incorporated medieval, Baroque, and modernist chamber music elements. Most importantly, their name is a phrase that you might use to describe a Great Dane or maybe the BFG. What band am I talking about? Question number four. This British prog rock band with a ton of, ton of president and former members. Wait, look, you don't know any of their songs or albums except for one. The song A Whiter Shade of Pale from 1968. It's a classic rock trivia question. Who is the weirdo prog rock band behind A Whiter Shade of Pale? Question number five. This former art-rock band moved into a more commercial and pop-oriented musical direction in the early 80s, when they released the album 90125 in 1983 with the hit single Owner of a Lonely Heart. Answer in the affirmative, who is this three-letter band? Question number six. This Canadian rock outfit had arguably the greatest drummer in music history in their lineup, who sadly died last January. They reached the top of the charts in Canada and beyond with their distinctive sound and singles like Limelight and Tom Sawyer. Take it easy and name this band. Question number seven You really have to be high to enjoy this Vermont jam band that has been around since 1983. The band consists of guitarist Trey Anastasio, bassist Mike Gordon, drummer John Fishman, and keyboardist Paige McConnell, all of whom perform vocals and were obviously inspired by the Grateful Dead. Name this band. Question number eight. This progressive metal band was formed in Georgia in 2000. True to prog form, their second album, Leviathan, is a concept album based on the novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Who is this band whose name is an ancient elephant like creature? Question number nine. Aside from all these bands, I am the biggest fan of this one, formed in Nyack, New York, and whose albums are mostly of the concept variety, based on a science fiction storyline called The Amory Wars, a series written by lead singer Claudio Sanchez, which has been transcribed into a series of comic books, as well as a full-length novel. I even walked down the aisle at my wedding to an instrumental of Welcome Home, who is this band whose name is the two main characters of The Amory Wars. And finally, question number 10, I'm going to name four prog rock band names, and you're going to tell me if they're real or something I made up. Number one, Spock's beard. Number two, frup. Number three, buh. And number four, Gandalf's fists. I'll give you a minute to think about it. I'll be back with your answers.
0: I want to stand and stare again Till there's nothing left of oh, 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 it remains there in your eyes Whatever comes and goes
1: I will hear your silent call
0: And I will judge this tender I'm no one. All right. Here we go. All right. So <laughs> similar to another time where Lauren did a quiz all about musicians that I didn't know about, <laughs> I'm going to do my best and then if I don't know it, I'm going to call upon my lifeline, engineer Josh, I, who I, is of course in my in my household the music person.
1: Sure. And you know what, honestly, I wrote this quiz just as much for him as I did for <laughs> you. So, great. All right, let's, I'm going to try. Okay, here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Question number one. This ever-changing prog rock band has been around since 1968 and has a huge cult following. With seminal albums such as In the Wake of Poseidon and Lark's Tongues in Aspic, this royal band has influenced prog rock acts for over 50 years. Who is this band whose two-word name involves an honorific and a color?
0: It just came to me. Oh, good.
1: What is it? King Crimson. Yes, King Crimson. Good job. 22 separate people have been in King Crimson at one point or another. Are we in King Crimson? We might be in King Crimson, including Tony Levin, who was Peter Gabriel's bassist and has been his bassist for like years and years and years. Tony Levin, Rochester. I'm not going to say Rochester native, but Rochester connection. Ties. Yeah. Yeah. Question number two, this oft-mocked prog rock folk band got a lot of heat in 1988 when they won a Grammy for best hard rock slash metal performance over Metallica's and Justice for All. You probably know them best for their flute. Who is this band who is named after an 18th century British
0: agriculturalist? It's Jethro Tull. It
1: is Jethro Tull. The only
0: damn thing I know about Jethro Tull is that they have a flute.
1: Exactly. So- The award was particularly controversial this Grammy, as many did not consider Jethro Tull hard rock, let alone heavy metal. Uh Uh, On the advice of their manager, who told them they had no chance of winning, no one from the band attended the award ceremony. (laughs) Uh, In response to the criticism they received over the award, their label, Chrysalis, took out an advertisement in a British music periodical with a picture of a flute lying amid a pile of iron rebar and the line, the flute is a heavy metal instrument. (laughs) <laughs> in response to an interview question about the controversy lead vocalist Ian Anderson quipped well we do sometimes play our mandolins very loudly
0: I didn't realize they were like a folk oh like yeah folky band like
1: a totally like like noodly, like medieval like do, do, do. <laughs> it's great okay question number three and I know this one tripped up Josh This band was a favorite of my mother's growing up and was only active between 1970 and 1980. Unlike many of their progressive rock contemporaries, their classical influences ranged beyond the romantic and incorporated medieval, Baroque and modernist chamber music elements. Most importantly, their name is a phrase that you might use to describe a Great Dane or maybe
0: the BFG. What band am I talking about? Alright, so the BFG is the Big Friendly Giant. Yes. And a Great Dane is like Scooby-Doo. Yep. <laughs> or Marmaduke. Sure. Um, uh, big, friendly, giant dog. The big, friendly, giant, great Dane. The big Dane. Friend,
1: it's only two words.
0: Friend, Scooby-Doo. Is, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you want me to tell you? Is my is? answer. Okay. Or? The answer is gentle giant. It's the name of the band. Oh. Um, so when I was a teen, I asked my mom what she listened to growing up. Like, when you were a teen mm-hmm. mom, what did you listen to? She was like, oh, I liked prog rock. I like Gentle Giant. I like Little Feet. I like Genesis. And I was like, oh, did you like David Bowie? And she was like, uh, David Bowie was too mainstream for me. I was like, wow. Nance. Okay, Nance. Wow. She can still like, if you, if you start her off on a Genesis song, She'll she'll keep
0: going. Sing to herself. She loves it. So there's. I'm going to derail your quiz Please. for a second. So uh, there's an ongoing joke in in the Novakovic family uh, regarding Christmas presents. Usually, mm-hmm. because people in my family are generally very bad about keeping sure. secrets. Yes. and mm-hmm. so the one year, um, everybody was buying presents for each other, and Billy is trying to ask. You know, well, hey. <laughs> do you like Genesis CDs? Like, <laughs> like wink at, you know, for my mom. Yeah. Uh, and then another time he bought her, uh, he, he went ahead and he bought her like a foot bath thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. And he was like, Hey mom, do you like, do you like your feet? <laughs> so that's generally like a, the, the one, two punch we have in our house oh, when sure. people like- are, are being handed gifts, like just hey. making sure, do you like Genesis CDs? <laughs> Cause I bought those for you. <laughs>
1: Okay, question number four. This British prog rock band with a ton of president and former members... Wait, look. You don't know any of their songs or albums except for one, the song A Whiter Shade of Pale from 1968. It's a classic rock trivia question. Who is the weirdo prog rock band behind A Whiter Shade of Pale? I do not know this one. You want to call on your lifeline
0: here? Yeah. And he is written down... Procol harem. Procol
1: harem is the answer.
0: (laughs) I have never seen that phrase in my life.
1: Well, good news. No one knows what the name means. Uh, There's a lot of theories that it's just bastardized Latin for beyond these things. It's probably just more purposeful weirdness. If you've ever heard the lyrics to Whiter Shade of Pale, it is just weirdness upon weirdness. Um, So there you go. Very prog rock. Okay. Question number five. This former art rock band moved into a more commercial and pop oriented musical direction in the early eighties when they released the album nine zero one two five in 1983 with the hit single owner of a lonely heart answer in the affirmative. Who is this three letter band? That's yes, it is. Yes. I yes. know
0: that song. I do know that song. Yeah. If you would have named any other song,
1: <laughs> no, I we would I, have been here for a while. Yeah. I knew I had to help you out. Um, question number six. This Canadian rock outfit had arguably the greatest drummer in music history in their lineup, who sadly died last January. They reached the top of the charts in Canada and beyond with their distinctive sound and singles like Limelight and Tom Sawyer. Take it easy and name this
0: band. This is Rush. It is Rush. Um, Noted a Jeopardy! champion Jennifer Morrow, who w- did her episode mm-hmm. I- with a pair of signed Neil Pert drumsticks yes then she showed them on stage mm-hmm. uh she's the biggest rush fan i've ever Absolutely. known in my life and so when he died her it was just people like oh yeah sending i'm so sorry all of their condolences mm-hmm. to her and she's how i know king the king crimson answer oh too. good job that's yeah. great
1: yeah i mean speaking of neil pert he he unfortunately he, died of glioblastoma yeah. which is a type of great brain cancer last january january 2020 Question number seven, you really have to be high to enjoy this Vermont jam band that's been around since 83. The band consists of guitarist Trey Anastasio, bassist Mike Gordon, drummer John Fishman, and keyboardist Paige McConnell, all of whom perform vocals and were obviously inspired by the Grateful Dead. Name this band. This is fish. This is fish.
0: Uh, Our p- friend Andrew is a big fish Oh, Andrew a big is a fish head. big
1: fish head. Hey, Andrew. Gibby. Question number eight. This progressive metal band was formed in Georgia in 2000. True to prog form, their second album, Leviathan, is a concept album based on the novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Who is this band whose name is an ancient elephant-like creature? Oh, I don't know this one. You
0: want to call on your lifeline here? I was The only thing I could get was uh, Mastodon. That's it. You got it right. It's Mastodon. Well, thank you for the clue.
1: (laughs) Good job. Question number nine, aside from all these bands, I am the biggest fan of this one formed in Nyack, New York, and whose albums are mostly of the concept variety based on a science fiction storyline called the Amory Wars, a series written by lead singer Claudio Sanchez, which has been transcribed into a series of comic books, as well as a full length novel. I even walked down the aisle at my wedding to an instrumental of Welcome Home, who is this band whose name is the two main characters of the Amory Wars. Nyack, New York's
0: biggest hit band is
1: Cohe and Cambria. It is Coheed and Cambria. Um, Steve and I, uh, on our second date ever, we went to uh Quimby's public house mm-hmm. and got uh you've heard this story, like a chicken wings times, chicken wings. And you know, you in the second date, you're always like, well, I've got one sister, and this is the music I like. And uh I was he said something like, Well, I don't know if you've ever heard of this band, but I don't know. I really like this. They're kind of like a new metal, like prog rock thing. It's called Coheed and Cambria. And I said, no, you don't. You don't because I like Coheed and Cambria. Um, and so that was one of the first things that we bonded over. And to this day, when Steve and I have had too much to drink, we blast good Apollo. I'm burning star four. And we slam dance in our kitchen. And it's a lot of fun.
0: Again, none of those words mean <laughs> anything. To good my Apollo. Brain. I'm
1: burning star four. <laughs> is like the 2006 like Sounds 2004, like you 2006 translated
0: something <laughs> wrong in babel I
1: mean, I don't know what it means. I just like the music. Anyway, finally question number 10. I'm going to name four prog rock band names and you're going to tell me if they're real or something I made up. Are you ready? Yeah, <laughs> I'm so okay. proud
0: of these. All right. Spock's Beard. I'm going to say that's
1: real. It is real. They're an American prog rock band formed in Los Angeles.
0: Number 2, Froop this is my favorite one, and if it isn't real, I'm already. I'm gonna name my <laughs> band that. Uh, I'm gonna say it's not real. It's real. They were.
1: <laughs> it's F R U U P P. They were a 1970s prog rock band which originally originated in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland, do but developed have, a big fan base in Great Britain.
0: Do they have an exclamation point at the end? No, that would make it better. okay. Whoop. I'm gonna reboot them with exclamation. Yeah, point. I mean they haven't been around. Maybe for I'll a throw an long. umlaut over over something too. I think it's a good idea. Uh, froop, <laughs> froop. uh all right
1: number 3
0: i'm guessing that's real <laughs> no it's oh, not okay. it's not i made it
1: up and the thing is the reason why i had to be a sound was because i was looking through like the wikipedia list mm-hmm. of prog rock bands i could not come up with something that wasn't <laughs> that already has, in existence exist. yeah <laughs> so i was like might as well be a sound <laughs> okay and number 4 gandalf's fist i'll say that's fake It's real. They are a UK neo-progressive rock band from Cumbria.
0: Good job. You did really good. I did better than I thought You did not need... You wrote some good clues into there, though, for those of us that uh, are, let's say, musically challenged. Hey, you know
1: what? Not everybody is a prog rock fan, so I get it. I get it. Um, Thanks for sticking with me on this, everybody.
0: I know this was a long one. And uh, if you have a favorite Peter Gabriel song, please please let Lauren know. Please let me know. And you guys can can start a deep front pen pen pal ship? yes
1: let's start Just, a peter gabriel fan club <laughs> <laughs> you might be like 40 years
0: too late i know
1: for that. i know i think i'm the only person under the age of 60 who loves peter gabriel that's probably not true that's sure probably there's a lot not of peter true. gabriel fans out there but yeah. i am a let, big big fan let lauren know yeah please please tell me what your p- favorite peter gabriel song is and why you know you can email us at missinfo pod gmail.com you can tweet at me at missinfo you know you can write on our facebook page Julie is in charge of that one, but you know, I'll, I'll pass it. it along. Yeah. Misinformation colon a trivia podcast. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for listening guys. I hope you enjoyed this. Definitely check out, I will put up my, I'll make my Spotify playlist public and, uh, you'll be able to see that on our social media. Perfect. So. All right. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye.